Tell us where we are, Dryas. We are at the old Indian meeting house here in Mashby for the Mashby Wampanoag that was built back in 1684. This is Darius Coombs. He's the cultural outreach coordinator for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. It's the oldest meeting house in the United States today. When you come into this building, it has holds a lot of power. You can, I can feel the power right now. The, my ancestors are right here because our graves are right outside where we bury our ancestors for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Post reporter Dana Hedgepeth met Darius in Mashpee, a small town on Cape Cod, and she asked him to take her to some sites that are important to the Wampanoags. It is the most powerful building that I've ever been in in my life. And when he unlocked that building and the smell of this deep cedar wood and pine just opened up, there's something special. For more than 10,000 years, the Wampanoags lived in what is now Massachusetts, fishing off the Cape and maintaining the land around them. They built dozens of villages and developed an elaborate system of messengers to communicate between them. Then, the first Europeans arrived. They met the Wampanoags' bows and arrows with guns. They took some into slavery, and they introduced diseases that the Wampanoags had no immunity against. Can you just imagine the traditions we lost? Our political structure, our traditional structure, I can't. And I would love to go back then before that happened. That spot of land is just, if land could talk, the stories it would tell. 400 years ago, in 1621, right near this spot of land, some pilgrims and some Wampanoags shared a meal. It wasn't the first meeting between the two groups, and it wouldn't be the last. But for a whole bunch of reasons, the anniversary of that meal, Thanksgiving, has become a huge part of American culture, taking on both an outsized importance and a whitewashed simplicity. Colonization. Colonization is a scary word for a lot of people, but it's fact. It's what happened to our people. And what that involves is cultural genocide, slavery, servitude, taking of land, more and more. So that we are a very proud people, you know. We always going to put up that fight no matter what. Because we're not going to back down. Why should we? We've been doing this for over 12,000 years. Why stop now? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 24th. Today, we set aside the popular American myth of Thanksgiving, and we hear the Wampanoag side of the story. I am Native American. I'm from the Halawasaponi tribe of North Carolina. That, again, is Post reporter Dana Hedgepeth. Back when we used to work in offices, a water cooler conversation with a great editor, Linda Robinson, and she said, what do you do for Thanksgiving? And I sort of chuckled and looked at her and said, you do realize I'm Native American, right? And I was like, yeah, it's not the biggest, most favorite holiday for my people. Uh, there's, you know, genocide, taking of our land, disease, war. Didn't turn out so well for overall Native Americans. That conversation got Dana thinking about Thanksgiving and how often the real history of it is overlooked. This year is the 400th anniversary of that first, quote unquote, Pilgrim Thanksgiving where the Pilgrims and the Native Americans, the Wampanoags, had that first dinner that has now become sort of a fantasized, popularized myth, in a way, of 1621 in Plymouth. 
Dana wanted to know whether the Wampanoags regretted that their ancestors had helped the pilgrims, these interlopers who went on to drive them out of their home. So I started working some contacts that I know, reaching out to people. The Wampanoags, they're an incredibly resilient, strong, smart, very sophisticated tribe. And at first, some of the folks I reached were a little reluctant, honestly. They were like, basically, you want to dial an Indian in November, which is sort of how I feel sometimes when I get called into a lot of schools and things to say, hey, can you speak on Native American Heritage Month? But as my family always says, better they die you once a year than not at all. Talking to the Wampanoags and telling them very simply, the story we want to tell is this. Look, you've been misrepresented. You've been marginalized. We're not going to be able to change the history, but we do want to listen. We really want to listen. We really want to hear your story. And I think that really intrigued them to open the door to say, okay, come up. We'll we'll meet you face to face. My American alias is Anita Peters. My tribal name is Mother Bear. I'm the Bear Clan mother in my tribe. Mother Bear is a 71-year-old Mashpee Wampanoag. She helps run the tribe's museum. Our geographical space was like just south of Boston, all the way down Cape Cod and the islands and into what is today Rhode Island. They numbered anywhere from as low as 30,000 to some say as much as 100,000. They had about 69 villages, each with their own chief, or the proper word actually is sachem, and their own medicine man. I would say we had things going pretty good here. (laughs) We had secure homes, um, plenty of food where we were. Like our home at Cape Cod was uh, abundant with game and fish, and we had big gardens. So like I said, life was pretty good for us. Most Americans don't learn about any of that. I'm old enough to have been taught in elementary school that, you know, oh, there was this Indian tribe and the pilgrims had the black felt hats and the big buckles and the the quote-unquote Indians wore headdresses with the construction paper, red, green, and yellow feathers. Uh, none of that's true <laughs> from the Indian side, I can tell you. It's myth. It's total myth. Yes, the pilgrims landed off the Mayflower in 1620, but it was several months before they actually had any interactions with the Wampanoags. The Wampanoags were watching them. It wasn't the first time that they had seen white settlers. This is another misconception that I think often gets ingrained in school kids. They had seen settlers. They had traded with travelers, explorers, as far back as 1524. So it was not new that they had seen someone who looked like them. Just a few years before the Mayflower arrived, something terrible happened. The Wampanoags had experienced what's known as the quote-unquote great dying, three years of death. And to this day, they still never really figured out what it was. Some people say it was smallpox. Some people call it, you know, the quote-unquote plague. But it killed two-thirds of the Wampanoag population. Can you imagine losing two-thirds of your population? The shores where Indians once lived, worked, and had settlements, the tribal villages, they're empty. They're nearly empty. So when the pilgrims arrived, Mother Bear says that the Wampanoags were cautious. It took a while for us to understand that they were not like us. And our attitude in those days was, okay, you guys are way different from us, so you stay over there and live life the way you want to and let us live the way we want to. But they couldn't deal with that. They 
You know, they wanted to force their ways on us. One of the leaders of the Wampanoags at the time was Osamequin, also known as Massasoit. He knew that dealing with the interlopers would require a delicate strategy. Osamequin was in a really complicated situation with his own tribe. At the time, he was facing pressures of competition, warfare with neighboring tribes, the Narragansetts. He also had gone through a terrible suffering of his own people. And at first, it seemed like maybe the pilgrims wouldn't be a threat, because unlike previous Europeans, they had brought women and children. Brian Whedon is the chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoags. We thought that they were here in peace. Um, And that's why, you know, we didn't really attack them because of our own beliefs as traditional Wampanoag people. So he thought, maybe they will cause me no harm. Maybe they would be better ally. They clearly have better weapons than I. They have guns. I have bows and arrows. He was a great leader. He was no fool. He strategically reached out to them months after they had arrived. They arrived in 1620. They lost half the pilgrims in the winter. In the spring, he reaches out to them sort of trying to figure out what is their purpose, not knowing that this is going to be what Frank James, a well-known Wampanoag activist, called the beginning of the end. But he reaches out to them strategically, thinking better to be allies than to be enemies. And that's how the table was set for the now infamous meal. In terms of the what we all know as the first Thanksgiving meal, it was nothing like what we'd been taught in elementary school. Well, we weren't invited, <laughs> one thing. It started as a harvest feast among the pilgrims. They were proud of themselves that they had survived. The Wampanoags had taught them how to plant the three sisters, beans, corn, and squash. They had some crops. They were also coming off a terrible devastation of losing half their population. In their revelry, they shot off their muskets, and Osamequin and his men thought that they were going to war. They were firing off their guns, and Osamequin and 90 of his men went there to find out what was going on. Massasoit made this agreement that if they were under attack, we would be there for them. So on that first quote-unquote Thanksgiving, that's why Massasoit showed up with 90 of his men. There were no Wampanoag women or children at that first Thanksgiving. We don't bring our women and children to battle. They came running to only find out, oh no, this is how the English party. And they set up camp. And that first quote-unquote Thanksgiving lasted for three days. It was a three-day celebration between games and things with the Wampanoags and the pilgrims and the settlers. The pilgrims say, hey, join us. There's not quite enough food for Osamequin and his men, so the Indians go and bring five deer to the table, and boom, that's how you get the first Thanksgiving story. They went out hunting and brought some deer and joined in, but it wasn't the way it's always been portrayed. The years that followed that Harvest Festival in 1621 were not kind to my people. Stephen Peters is a Mashpee Wampanoag. He works at a native-focused production company called Smoke Signals. We went into uh, a period where we were forced to live under English law. And English would refuse to live under the laws that my ancestors had been living under for, you know, then 11,000 years. The Wampanoags are trying to keep their land. The New England area gets set up into townships, and then with townships comes taxation. This is all a a foreign concept that Native Americans don't believe in. But again, they're forced to do this. But sadly, they lose some of their land because they're unable to pay their taxes. 
um, they don't have the income. They live off the land. They don't make the money to pay the taxes of the system that's been put on them. So sadly, that's how they lose some of their land. And then it just perpetuates onward to where their their land mass really shrinks. They ended up putting laws on us where they had the pray or die policy on us where if you didn't become a Christian, you had to run away or hide or pretend that you were a Christian. They could indenture our men for two years at a time if the Englishman said he owed them money. They could indenture our children as young as 10 years old for 10 years at a time. And there was nothing we could do about it because, you know, the alternative would be jail or death. So it was it was hard. It wasn't until probably the early 1900s that we were able to start to reclaim everything that had been taken away from us. And we're still here trying to do that today because you can't remove something for 300 years and then snap your fingers and it just miraculously comes back. So without the help of the Wampanoags, the pilgrims might not have survived their second winter. But in part because they offered that help, the Wampanoags were the ones who nearly disappeared. It's hard to, to say that we, we shouldn't have helped them because we're human beings and that, that's what we do. We would naturally try to help people. But I think we let them get away with too much stuff. I mean, there were plenty of times we could have wiped them all out. You know, but we're human beings. I, I think we can hold our heads up and say that we we did not take that route. You know, we we kept our humanness. After the break, how the Wampanoags lost control of their story. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. For me and my family, Thanksgiving has always been a really meaningful holiday because unlike so many other holidays, especially holidays that are popular here in the U.S., it's not about spending money. It's not about buying stuff. It's not about like all these things that you have to go to. It's this incredibly simple, lovely idea of spending an afternoon eating a meal with the people you love and giving thanks. But hearing this story of the first Thanksgiving, about how it was this fleeting moment of peace in the middle of what was really a genocide, it's just hard to square that. I mean, the whole Thanksgiving thing, the Christmas thing, those are all public relations kind of, that's what America's built on, you know, trying to make everything look pretty when it's really not. Thanksgiving itself was something that was made up at the end of the Civil War. It was made up to give people a reason to come back together around a table to get people from the North and the South both to break bread and give thanks for, you know, the country that we have. Uh, To do that, they had to create a narrative that built that up. And to do that, 
that narrative had to essentially ignore the truth. And the truth is that there was a significant amount of devastation that happened to the Wampanoag people for this country to be built up. I've often heard people say, oh, Thanksgiving is the one and only quote unquote all American holiday. So I think people have a myth. It's been turned into this great myth in a way. And we as a society have allowed that myth to grow, right? It's like a snowball. You roll it more and more and it gets really big. And you've got a tribe, the Wampanoags, that while once very strong and still very strong, they're numbers of 2,300. It's very hard for your message to get out of, hey, we're still here. It took decades for the Mashpee Wampanoags to be federally recognized as a tribe. That finally happened in 2007, but they're still fighting for true sovereignty. Today, the Mashpee Wampanoags still live in parts of Cape Cod that their ancestors inhabited for thousands of years. That land is a tiny fraction of what they once occupied. It's piecemeal and scattered. In 2015, the Obama administration put aside 300 acres for the Mashpee, essentially a reservation. But then the Trump administration tried to roll that back, jeopardizing the Wampanoag's ability to keep developing it. The Mashpee Wampanoags are still waiting for final word from the Department of the Interior on what will happen to their land. The fact that our tribe is still in a holding pattern right now with the federal government, um, I think, you know, speaks speaks volume. We're about to go into Thanksgiving where everyone wants to make it seem like everything's all great between the Wampanoags and the Pilgrims and all this great thing. And, you know, we're still waiting to figure out what the status is of our land. There's over a million visitors a year that come to Plymouth. You know how many come to the Wampanoag Museum in Mashpee 30 miles away? 800. So the myth kind of propagates itself in a way. And nobody wants to step back and say, what is this about? Um... People don't like looking back on history of dark times. It makes us feel bad. It, it kind of ruins the Norman Rockwell you know, setting of everybody sitting around the turkey dinner with all the trimmings if you start peeling that back. So Thanksgiving is often a tiring time for them. And I asked the Wampanoags when I was there, what will you do for this Thanksgiving? Um, and a lot of them just said, you know, it'll be another day. In Wampanoag schools, kids aren't really taught about Thanksgiving. And when they do ask about it, the teachers explain, that was part of a really hard time for us. Since the 1970s, many Wampanoags have participated in the National Day of Mourning, a day of memory that has sometimes turned into a protest. Mother Bear has her own traditions. Who doesn't like a good feast? But (laughs) myself, I usually go to the Day of Mourning, but... Some of us traditionals go at sunrise, and we do our own ceremonies, mostly giving thanks to our ancestors for still watching over us and guiding and protecting us, uh, because I, I believe that's why we're still here. But also, that's not so different from what she does every day. It's it's a different mindset. To, me, to us, you give thanks every day, all day long. Like the purpose in life is to be in a constant state of Thanksgiving. So having that one day is is like an American silliness to me. (laughs) For Dana, working on this story has also been a time to pause and remember and to think about what it means to regret. 
I feel passionate about the word regret. I regret history was unkind to my people. So I, th I think it's okay to regret. I think it's okay to acknowledge there's nothing harmful in stopping and pausing and remembering our history. Nobody has to feel bad, eat your turkey, have a second helping to mash potatoes. I'm not saying people should have white guilt. I'm saying pause, remember, and reflect. Reflect. Just pause, remember, reflect, respect those Wampanoags for the people who they are. Listen to their story. That's all. Just think about it. Dana Hedgepeth is a reporter for The Post. Emma Telkoff produced this story. It was edited by Maggie Penman. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Emma Talkoff and Lena Muhammad. If you value journalism like this, this is a great time to become a subscriber. Right now, through the end of November, you can get a subscription to The Washington Post for just 99 cents every four weeks. And if you want to give the gift of great journalism to someone else, for just $9.99, you can give someone a subscription for the whole year. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. We'll also stick that link in our show notes. I'm Martine Powers. We are taking Thursday and Friday off. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.